is Keith Davidson. And this is Stuart Albertson. Welcome to another episode of Albertson and Davidson Live. And today, uh, as all days, actually, we're joined by our assistant and paralegal, Kayla. Say hi, Kayla. Hi. She's been with us uh, from the <laughs> beginning, but we only just now figured out how to work her camera. So it's a work in progress. We're learning as we go. Uh, a little later, Kayla is going to help us out with some of our questions, but let's start off with our breaking news for this week. Breaking news comes to us from a case called Orange Catholic Foundation versus Rosie Arzavu. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm not sure. But this is kind of an interesting case because it has to do with a trustee who did some things wrong and was sued because she did some things wrong. And, well, we'll see what the court does with it. How about that? Um, should I start off with the facts? Yeah, let's, let's run through the facts. All right. So in this case, we have a trust that was created, and the person who created the trust created a trust for the life of her good friend of over 60 years, Paul. And Paul was given the right to live in a house for the rest of his life, provided that he paid for certain expenses. And we see this fairly often, right, in trusts where— sure where people are given a, a life estate, we call it, but they have to pay for certain expenses. Well, over time, Paul got to the point where he couldn't take care of himself anymore. He had to have a living caregiver, and he couldn't afford to pay the expenses of the home. So what is the trustee going to do, kick him out or let him stay there? Well, the trustee let him stay there and just use the trust funds to pay for the expenses for the home, things like property tax, insurance, that sort of thing. And so that went along until Paul's death. And then at Paul's death, then the trustee took a while to actually sell the house from 2012 to 2015. Took her about three years to actually get around to selling it. And so the remainder beneficiary was the church. So that was the plaintiff in this case, Orange Catholic Foundation. And so they sued her for breaches of trust. And they believed that she used something in the neighborhood of $44,000 to take care of the home that supposedly Paul should have paid. And so it went through the trial court, and uh, the trial court said that the church was being both unrealistic and not particularly charitable. <laughs> so, so where do you think this case is heading for the charity? It's not looking good for the uh, charitable Catholic foundation. Yeah, when the, uh, when the court starts off by saying that, you know you're in trouble. Uh, so the court pointed out that they, they acknowledged that, look, the trustee did wrong. She violated the terms of the trust. She wasn't supposed, you know, Paul was supposed to pay these expenses. He didn't. Uh, the trust said if he didn't pay it, then he lost his life estate. The house should have been sold. But the court also surmised that of the $44,000, about 40000 of it was used to benefit the residents. So it was things like insurance, property taxes, homeowners association dues, all the things that you would need to maintain the home. Uh, even if Paul didn't live there, those if you continue to own the home, you didn't have to pay for those things. Yes, of course, there would be rental income as well, though, to offset some of that, right? Right, and that's what the charity was arguing, is that then she should have rented it out. There also was $4,000 in expenses that uh, really went to benefit Paul personally, not so much the expenses of the home. So $44,000, but the court's reasoning, well, 40000 of it, a big bulk of it uh, had to do with the home anyway. So what are you going to do in this case? Also for the sale, in November of 2012, when Paul died, the house was worth 410000 
Trustee waits until 2015 to sell the house, and it sells for 546000 Huge increase. $136,000 increase. Right. So no harm, no foul, maybe. Well, and the charity's not happy because it took three years to sell the home. So they want, they want something for that, having to wait three years. So what do you think the court does with all this? I think the court says no harm, no foul. I think, I think uh, ultimately what happened here is you have a trial judge that sees the demeanor of the trustee. I'm assuming there was some testimony of the trustee and seemed like a credible person, a good person, and maybe they had made some mistakes here along the way. But the increase of the value of the home uh, was substantial. Now, I don't know what the charity would have done with the home during that time. I don't know if they would have sold it or invested it and maybe made some money as well. But there was obviously an increase in the value of the home during the time where there was this $40,000 or so that was paid for the life tenant. Um, these things make, the, there's a saying in law school, bad facts make bad law. And I kind of feel like this is one of those cases. But as you know, there is a provision in the probate code that even when you show damages against a trustee, what can the probate court do? Yeah, they can give you a get-out-of-jail-free card, and that's exactly where this case is heading, of course. And it's Probate Code Section 16440, subsection B, and, it, and they quote it in this case, and it says, If the trustee has acted reasonably in, and in good faith under the circumstances as known to the trustee, the court, in its discretion, may excuse the trustee in whole or in part from liability if it would be equitable to do so. So... There's a lot of ifs in there. So if the trustee has acted reasonably and in good faith under the circumstances as known to the trustee, the court in its discretion may excuse the trustee if equitable to do so. And, and this is why it's so hard for us to advise clients. And we, rep, we normally are going after trustees, right? Yeah, and of course. And trustees that make significant mistakes, and it costs a lot of money to that beneficiary's beneficial interest in the trust, and we always have to have the caveat that, hey, we can slam dunk this case, although there is no such thing as a slam dunk, but we can really do a good job in this case and get all kinds of damages against this trustee. And then the court can say, yes, but in my discretion, these were done in good faith and I'm not going to hold damages against the trustee. Yeah. And that's the problem is that you really have to understand that there's a huge out for trustees. And that is the court can let them off the hook if the court feels it's equitable to do so. And so you have to position the case so that hopefully that doesn't happen. The re you could see why it happened here, because you have somebody who's ill, lived in the house for you know, a longtime friend of the settlor. He, you know, this guy's living in the house. He's ill. He can't pay. And 40000 of the 44000 that was spent was for things that benefited the house anyway. So you can see where this is heading right off the bat. Um, but, yeah, it's, if, you, if you're not careful, you can corner the trustee, and then they have a, a back door that they can run out of. Well, and here's the, here's where it's important that the lawyer that's on your case understands who the judge is in the county. Um, you should have a read on every judge that you appear in front of, and you have yeah. an idea of what they're going to do. If this was in front of Judge Caraman in Riverside, do you think it would, at the trial court level it would have resulted in the same? Or, or what about uh, what's the judge up in uh, San, San Mateo? Uh, what if it was in front of him? Uh, would the would the trustee have been excused? I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I've seen almost every judge exercise discretion. At times, I agree. At times, I don't. You know, and I think the 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 reason why that is is because we all have our own life experiences, and we all have our own points of view. And so, you and I, if we were sitting on the bench right now as judges, and we each were hearing essentially the same case, we had there's a good chance we would rule differently on it. 
depending on our own life experiences. That's the problem with this equitable powers of the court is that there's no bright line rules here. It's, it's kind of a, a squishy area. And what about the appeal? So, okay, the court, the trial court exercised discretion. It goes up on appeal. What power does the appellate court have in a case like this? Well, uh, just as a, a general rule, 90% of trial judge decisions that are appealed, over 90% of them are going to be affirmed or confirmed by the appellate court. Mm-hmm. So one in 10 is going to be reversed. And so here you have a trial, an appellate court that's not going to disturb the trial court's finding absent some kind of manifest or substantial error on the part of the trial court. And you have a statute that says that a judge has this discretion. Right. So why would the appellate court undo that decision? Yeah, and, and the p- appellate court here said, well, we're going to review this under the abuse of discretion standard for appeals. And you're almost done with abuse of discretion. You're almost done because under that standard, the only way the, tr- the appellate court's going to overturn it is if they conclude that the trial court's decision exceeds the bounds of reason and results in a miscarriage of justice. Right. I mean, that's going to be a pretty extreme case. Right where you're going to get the... So the appellate court affirmed the trial court in this case. That's right. You, you would expect that. Yes. I mean, And in fact, I, I don't know if everybody knows this, but appellate judges, when they look at these cases, it's actually written in all the practice aids that we look at. They actually try to find ways to support the trial court's finding. So right. in every case that you appeal and you think you've got this great appeal and you're going to go up and do something with it, right. you're, you're working against the appellate court because they're trying to figure out a way, any way they can, to make the trial court right, even if they disagree personally with what the trial court did. And I think most people would be surprised to hear that. If you're not in the law profession, I think it'd be surprising to hear that because I, I think what most people think in their minds is the appellate court wants to correct this wrong, and of course if I lose in trial, it's wrong. <laughs> And so the appellate court should want to correct that. That's right. And and then I think one step further, it's not the appellate court, but if you think about the next level of court after that, it's the California Supreme Court or the United States Supreme Court. Yeah. Uh, those courts generally don't take decisions that are decided wrongly. They take decisions where they want to set a policy for a, a, an area of the law. So that's what they're looking for. They're not necessarily, you know, you're the aggrieved party in this case, the charity here. You're going to say, well, if the appellate court won't give it to me, I'm going to go to the California Supreme Court. You've got next to, to nothing chance of getting the Supreme Court to take this because they're only going to take big policy matter cases. And right now, I don't think there's a policy matter of holding trustees accountable. Not under these scenarios, not under this scenario, no. no. The other thing that's interesting to me about this case is what about this aggressiveness on behalf of the charity to go after the trustee for 44000 I mean, we've seen this, Keith, from the beginning of our practice. I started practicing in California in 2004. I think you were a year or two earlier than I was. I was always shocked at how aggressive charities are. I, I, you, we've had many cases where we've had charities that are very small beneficiaries of a trust, and they'll throw a settlement off with all the primary beneficiaries because they've got to have every penny and every dollar that they're given under the trust, and they'd rather wait 20 years to get it than to settle for a reasonable amount. Yeah, I've seen a shift over time because when I first started, right before, when I was working as a paralegal before I became a lawyer, we had cases, and when I was first a lawyer, I think the charities weren't quite that aggressive. They were a little bit more willing to negotiate and get what they get. And then over time, especially the last, what, five to eight years maybe, they've gotten a lot more aggressive of going after these things. And I think a lot of that has to do with the rise of what they call planned giving in the charitable world. 
So charities have learned that they don't just have to go to people and ask for a donation currently, but if you're part of a person's estate, you can get a much bigger gift after they're gone. Right. And they call that planned giving. So they want everybody to leave gifts to the charity as part of your estate plan. Right. And so they've gotten much more aggressive at going after these things. But I was kind of surprised. Now, that, uh, that's why I was kind of chuckling when the court said that they found the church's actions both unrealistic and not particularly charitable. Right. Because, okay, I mean, it was kind of not particularly charitable. Right. You know, especially with poor Paul, that he couldn't even take care of himself or afford the expenses. So That's right. What, what happens here if we change the facts up a little bit, though, and I change the beneficiary from this charity to two individuals who are struggling to make ends meet year after year after year, and they've basically lived hand-to-mouth, and they've been waiting for this trust distribution for years, what about their rights? I mean, they're they're people too, and they've been harmed by this, because clearly the trustee took too long to sell the property, and secondly, she made expenditures that she shouldn't have made. Right. And we all agree to that. The, The trial court agreed to that. The appellate court agreed to that. Right. So I wonder if that changes the dynamics a little bit. I think so. I think anytime you start changing around the facts and making the ultimate beneficiary different or more needy or more, you know, I think you've said for a long time that most judges make decisions because they want to do what's right in their mind. And then you can back into the legal analysis. And I'm not saying that that judges do that in any nefarious way. That's not a, a negative thing. But I think that it's just human nature is that we want to see the right result. And every person has their own idea of what the right result is. And a lot of times there's multiple ways to get to the right result. Right, right. That's true. You know, this reminds me, if we're kind of done with this this opinion, I just wanted to, I just thought about judges making decisions that they feel good about and then backing themselves into it. If you remember, we had a client a few years back that uh, he committed suicide. Yeah. And uh, before he committed suicide, he, he wrote an email, just a few minutes before he committed suicide, he wrote an email um, to all of his family members, telling them that he wanted to change his trust, a trust that we had drafted for him, and he put what he wanted to change. And I, it, it was a significant change between the beneficiaries. Right. And then he even typed out his name at the end of the email, right. and he fires off this email, he commits suicide, and then we're hired by the family members who were going to get more. Uh, and so we moved forward uh, in that case, there, the judge, she wanted to do the right result. She knew what this person had intended because she could read their email. Right. And she knew they'd intended to make this change. But, of course, what do you need to have a valid trust amendment? Yeah, you have to have a signature. And an email isn't a signature. It That's had to why be a wet you, signature, right? Yeah, a wet signature, not a type signature. That's why texts can't be email, or uh, can't be wills. You can't text a will. You can't email a will. Right. You have to print it out and sign it. That's right. And so, in that case, the judge didn't feel good about holding the black letter law against our position in the case. Rather, the judge decided that a post-it note with a name on it, posted to the email, taped to the door by the decedent prior to his passing, that the post-it note with his name on it was a signature to that amendment to the trust, that email, which essentially was an amendment. So I don't know what would have happened to that on appeal. It was not appealed. We, we were nervous. We didn't want it to be appealed. But you could see the judge there. She wanted to find the fair result and probably didn't do exactly what the black letter law would have required. It's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it was stretching it a bit because the there was a signature on the post-it note, and then the post-it note was on a printout of the email. 
It, but it, it worked for that case, I guess. So, I mean, this is justice. This is how justice is done. Right. Is that it's, it's a case-by-case basis. Well, you know what's interesting about that is we, uh, we had appeared in front of a visiting judge from Los Angeles like a month before on that same case. And he was, he was an old curmudgeon of a judge. And he was ready to make a decision in front of us without any further briefing. We all showed up to the, to the hearing. And uh, we, we obviously were the trustee. We represent the trustee in that case. And so the, the beneficiary that ultimately got more under the, the amendment had their own lawyer there. Yeah. And that lawyer shows up and had to do some careful tap dancing because yeah. this old curmudgeon judge was saying, hey, this is a legal determination. I'm ready to make a decision right now. And we were saying, wait, judge, we want to give you some more briefing on this before you make the decision. And then by the time that additional briefing was allowed and another judge was to hear it, it was the main pro- probate judge again who heard it and not the visiting judge. And that decision that that curmudgeon judge was going to rule was against it being a valid It looked signature. that way. It looked that way. And so you have one judge saying there's no way that this is a valid amendment. You have another judge saying, yes, it is a valid amendment, and I'm going to use this signature on a Post-it note to, to justify my decision. That's, that's, that's what we're dealing with. Well, and that's what people need to understand, too, about our legal system is they're called judges for a reason. Right. They have to judge. Right. They have to make determinations. Yes. And these are individuals with subjective experience, which you alluded to earlier. Everyone has a different way of practicing law. Everyone has a different view. Some people are conservative. Some people are liberal. Some people are kind of in between. Well, you know, the, <laughs> I was in front of Judge Caraman once, actually, and uh, many times, but one time I was in front of him and he started talking. I started, I was, there was an issue in court where I was talking to the court and I said something about the equity versus the legal argument. And, uh, and all of a sudden, Karaman goes, Oh, yes. You see, Mr. Davidson is referring to Henry VIII. And I was thinking, I am? <laughs> because Henry VIII is the one who combined the courts of equity and the courts of law because equity used to be a petition to the king. Right. And so if you couldn't get a, the result that you wanted or it's a harsh result or an unfair result under the law, you would petition the king. That ended up being courts of equity right? where uh, the courts would be able to do justice that was kind of outside the black letter law. And then those two courts were ultimately combined. In our system, they are combined. So courts of law and courts of equity are not separate. One court does both. And so our probate judge and our probate court at times, it's doing things that are on the law, legal side. At times, it's doing things that are on the equitable side. That's right. And that's the history of that. But I, I always remember him saying, oh, yes, he's referring to Henry VIII. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Right. But then once he explained it, I, I did. But this is this is what we have. And I, I think I didn't really think about it before, but I think you're right. That's why they're called judges. They have to, Somebody has to make a decision. Somebody. And this is, and you're, you know, this appellate judge, uh, this appellate panel right here made up of, I'm presuming, three justices if it would have been another three, who knows? It might have gone the other way. Right, if it would, it would right. have been a different trial judge, it could have gone the other way. Right. Um, but ultimately, we have a system where whoever ends up being the judge or the justice in the case, we rely on them because hopefully we're putting people in those positions that do have good judgment, good experience, and they're able to make a decision that we all can say is a final decision for the most part. Right. And we can all figure out how we, we react to that going forward. One quick one quick final note on this: the house sold for one hundred and thirty-five thousand dollars more over those because they waited three years to sell it, and the market went up. Right. And a lot of times, people get upset about that because it's like, well, the trustee should have sold it in twenty twelve, and they didn't. I want to sue them. Right. And we have to explain: look, you can sue them all you want, but there's no damages. That's that, right. The property of the house went up. Right. 
So what's any thoughts on that? Well, the only argument I have to that is, yeah, that may be true, but if you would have sold it in 2012 and I would have taken it, I would have put it in the stock market and the S&P 500 has gone up 12% a year since then. So I would have been able to capture that and more had you made the distribution to me. Now, of course, all of those are hindsight arguments. Right. But anytime you're excusing a trustee from intentionally and ignorantly, in this case, breaching the trust, and I don't mean ignorant in a, in, a, uh, in a terrible way, it's just that she probably didn't know any better when she made these decisions, um, I think you have to be careful because those rules are there for a reason. Uh, but here, you've got this big bag charity. You know, they, yeah. They're represented by high, highly paid, highly compensated lawyers, and they're coming in and they're going against this Rosie Marie uh, Arvitsu, this poor little trustee, and she probably was a, you know, again, she when she testified, I'm presuming she testified, the judge was probably impressed with her credibility and yeah. that she was a nice person and she was doing the best she could under the circumstances. What's interesting, though, is even in your argument when you said I could have invested it and made more, what you're looking for there is damages, right? Right. If you don't have damages, that's right. you can't sue the trustee. That's no right. No harm, no foul. That's right. That's how trust law works. That's right. So they might be liable for not selling the house, but can you show there's true damages that come right. from that? Yeah. That's it's crazy. Yep. All right. I think we've discussed that case <laughs> enough. Let's go to our opinion. And Stuart, do you have a, uh, some thoughts on, on a... Uh, point of practice that you want to share with us today? Um, well, there's one that, that keeps popping up. Uh, it pops up from us, uh, for us from time to time, and I also see it popping up in the news. Of course, the California um, Supreme Court just updated and adopted new rules of professional conduct for lawyers. Oh, yeah, that's a huge overhaul. whole new slew of, they've been renumbered, and now we're reading them. They've been, been reworded. Um, you know, lawyers need to be regulated. Clearly, lawyers need to be regulated. It's not, sure. you know, it's not a month that goes by where you're not reading something from the from the bar journal where some lawyer has taken somebody's a lawyer or a client's funds and used them for them themselves. Yeah, it's unfortunate sad. that those kind of things happen, uh, but uh, lawyers need to be regulated. Uh, there's one area where I think lawyers can do better, and that's when there's been a breakdown in the lawyer-client relationship. And I'm guilty of this. I'm sure you're guilty of this. It hurts. It hurts when there's a breakdown in that relationship, when the, when the client can no longer trust you or tells you they don't trust you, uh, where the client refuses to go along with your uh, sound legal advice, where the client tells you to do something that you find ethical, uh, ethically you can't do, right. or that they're maybe intentionally lying and they're going to lie on the record. And, and you're against all those things. Well, how do you end that relationship? And probably the biggest reason that lawyers end relationships with clients is because the clients become upset at the lawyer because they don't feel the case is going the way that the lawyer promised them or whatever the case may be. And so they quit paying the lawyer. And so then the lawyer's not being paid any longer. And so the lawyer says, I want to disengage. I want to get out of this case because you're not paying me. Where if we looked, if we stepped back two months into that, the lawyer needs to make sure they're communicating with the client. Right. Look, there's bad things that happen in hearings. It's not always going to go our way. And this is what we're doing to make this right. We're doing the best we can. If you don't tell a client that right up front, you're setting yourself up for a long, miserable relationship because the client feels they're right. There's not a client that we represent that, doesn't, that, don't, that don't feel that they're 100% right in most cases. And they think that naturally, once we communicate that to, to a judge, the judge is going to see it our way. Well, the judge doesn't always see it that way. The client becomes disenchanted with you, upset, 
and quits pain. And now you're in a position where you're either going to be continue working in an unpaid fashion or you're going to end that relationship. And I think we have to be much better at the way we end those relationships. So I would say that everything must be in writing when you're doing this. So there has to be emails, letters. I prefer emails myself, but if you some lawyers like to write letters. And I think you're going to have to think about how do these emails look three years from now? Um, my mom used to tell me when I'd go to third grade that Jesus was sitting on my shoulder. Um, <laughs> so you, here you want to think about the judge sitting on your shoulder. Right. What would you want in those emails? And so you don't, you don't want to surprise the client. You don't want to put the client in a bad position. You want to tell the client, look, obviously you're not trusting me any longer. You're, you, you're not paying me, which is a breach of the terms of our agreement. You're upset at my performance as a lawyer. You feel like I should be doing better for you. I disagree with that, but I'm just letting you know this is, this is a breakdown in our relationship. You, you refuse to communicate with me. I don't want to harm your case. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to suggest that you go find a law firm, a lawyer that you are happy with that maybe will do a different type of job than we're doing on this case. So please, I'm letting you know right now, would you please go out and look for another law firm or lawyer? And in the meantime, uh, we can try to hold things together for you over the next couple of weeks. We won't miss any hearings. We'll get discovery done. We'll do all those things. Put all that in a writing. Yeah. Well, and I think what people don't understand, both lawyers and clients need to understand, is that not every lawyer-client relationship is a good fit. And so, unfortunately, there's times when the relationship does break down. And if you don't have a good relationship and you don't have that trust built up and you're not seeing things eye to eye, that relationship is probably never going to be repaired. And you think about lawyers and clients have to develop a trusting relationship very fast under very difficult circumstances. That's right. I mean, it's not that often. Like, can you imagine if you had to go out and uh, get a new, you had to date within litigation? So while you're dating, okay with is, me. Somebody is is fighting you. Uh, you know, actively trying to dislodge everything you're you're trying right. to build up. I mean, that's essentially the situation you're in. But and it's okay. I mean, sometimes relationships don't work out, and the, you do have to call it quits. But yeah, how you end the relationship is so vitally important in terms of writing it or, or whatever. But how do you do that with the, I mean, usually by the time you get to the point where you're ending a relationship, you know, emotions are running high and everybody's really distrusting, distrusting each other at that point. And luckily it doesn't happen to us often, but it's happened occasionally. I think that's when the communication has to go above and beyond, doesn't it? That's right. And I think the lawyer there has to be the adult, no matter how they feel. Because mm-hmm. it's never fun to hear someone say, you're not a good lawyer. Right. Uh, I made an oral argument uh, last year that really impacted me because the client was not happy with my oral argument. And I thought I did a fantastic job. But the client said she wasn't happy with what I did. And it hit me hard because I'm thinking, man, I, did, I worked hard on that. I did a really good job. Be the adult. And in that case, we're still representing that person, but, right. but uh, be the adult and do that first email, I said. And then you want to follow up about once a week and another email. And again, what do you want in that email three years from now, if a judge or a state bar, or if you're in a deposition, you want to do the right things. You want your behavior to be ethical. You want it to be moral. You want to be looked upon as as you you did the best you could under the circumstances with somebody that, that's mad at you, doesn't want to communicate with you, is frustrated by the whole litigation experience, and they're tagging it to you, by the way. They're hanging it on you because right. they're just frustrated Whether with the whole... Whether you have anything to do with it or not. Yeah. But yeah, that's where you want to make sure you hand back the file promptly. 
sign the substitution of attorney promptly. We've had issues with that. And return any unused retainer balance promptly. Well, and yes and no. And I, th- I think that what, what we have to distinguish there is if the client's firing us, yes to everything you just said. But if we're firing the client, yeah. that's a different story. And I think what we have to do there is we have to progress. We have to have a progression of these emails and communications to show that we did everything we could to try to get them to hire another lawyer. We need to make sure that we put in the applicable statute of limitations. We need to put in that there's possibly other statute of limitations. Please let us know if you found a new lawyer because we want to give them the file. It's ready to go. It's in Dropbox. We're ready to transfer it over to the other law firm. And uh, by the way, we want those lawyers to call us. And at no charge to you, we want to bring them up to speed on your case. Now, sometimes you're not going to hear back from the client because they're just so mad and upset. Other times you'll hear back, they'll say, fine, I found a lawyer. Please bring them up to speed. Oh, that's beautiful. Right. You confirm all that in a writing. You call the lawyer up. You download the case to them as you know it the best way you can. Nice clean handover, and And, they're off to the races. And you've confirmed that in one final email, and chances are you've done that properly, and you're not going to hear anything back from that. Right. Yeah, and we do want to leave clients in as best a position as we can, even when the relationship's ending. We want them to feel good about, as best as they can, about at least we did everything we could to hand it off properly. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Now, these are far and few between. This doesn't happen that often in, in the practice of law. But, you know, for example, we've had a couple of cases recently come into our firm where the clients were firing their previous lawyers. Right. And that's where it goes to what you were just pointing out, and that is, hey, the other lawyers, they can't hijack the file they can't stop just not, you know, they can't let us know about hearings and motions and things like that. They've got to bring us up to speed. That's a, that's actually in the rules. They can't just let us go. And while they can certainly charge for the duplication of the, of the client's file, that, number one, has to be in the engagement letter that they do that. They can't hold it as a hostage until payment is made. They still must give us the file. And then if they want to go enforce their rights under the contract for the duplication costs, you know, go at, go, be my guest, go for it. Right. But you can't hold the file back. You can't uh, be in a, you can't take the position that you're not going to talk to the new attorney and not bring them up to speed on hearings that are coming up and those kind of things. Right. Exactly. Yeah, no, I agree completely. So that's what I learned this week. <laughs> okay, good. All right, let's go on to, uh, do we have our asked and answered up there? There we go. On Ask Nast, we have uh, some questions, or at least one question, right, that came in this week, Kayla? Maybe you can uh, enlighten us on uh, what is your number Where's Kayla? Where's, there she is. <laughs> hey, Kayla. Hi. What's the top question that you've been asked this week as potential clients are calling in and, and seeking our services? Yeah, so this is a question that we get all the time. Uh, trust beneficiaries calling in and wanting to know if they are entitled to a pre-death accounting and specifically if the settler is incapacitated are the beneficiaries allowed to ask for an accounting when the successor trustee has already taken over all right well that's a good question i I would say it's a definite maybe a definite maybe that's a it's a perfect lawyer answer isn't it well, um, it could be, it could not be. What's the general rule? Generally, it's going to be, we're going to start off with a no. 
which, you know, it's tough, and people don't want to hear that, and I don't like saying that. Which means it's almost always better when somebody's dead, right? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Isn't that true? It's true. And so you're sitting there telling the person, well, as soon as they're dead, there's all kinds of things we can do for you. Well, let me, let me, let me qualify <laughs> that answer, because I don't want to just have a blanket statement that it's always better when people are dead. It's, um, if you're a beneficiary of a trust... It's always best when your rights have completely vested, right. meaning that you're first up as beneficiary and there's nobody standing in front of you as a right. beneficiary. Right. Usually that means the beneficiary in front of you has to be deceased. Yes. That's just the without, way. Without your help. That's the, benefic- <laughs> the beneficiary can't help the decedent die. Well, as long as it's not a felony. If it's a misdemeanor, <laughs> misdemeanors uh, don't count. What's the felonies. misdemeanor for uh, murder? I mean, is there one? Or uh-huh, yeah. There is? Okay. Yeah, right. I had a case years ago where this uh, lady killed her husband, but only on a misdemeanor basis. So he jumped on the car, grabbed the windshield wipers as she was taken off. Uh-huh. She stops the car. When she breaks, he flies off, hits his head, and dies. But it wasn't intentional, so it's not like she, she... Did she feel bad about it, or was she oh, like... Oh, yeah. Oh, she did, yeah. Yeah, she felt bad. Because she was your client, right? <laughs> <laughs> All I know is she wasn't precluded from inheriting, because even though she was ultimately charged, because the brother of this guy really pushed the DA to charge her with something, um, she was charged, but because it was pled out on a misdemeanor, it didn't count for the felony murder statute, because in California, as in most states, I would think... There's a statute that says if you kill somebody, you can't inherit their money. Right. Makes sense. Right. Right? So what happens here? So people call in, and usually mom or dad, or let's say just mom is still alive, and there's a bunch of shenanigans going on with mom's money. One of the other siblings are in there or caregivers in there, and they want to go in and force the trustee of the trust to give an accounting. Is that right, Kayla? That's about how it goes? Yeah. Okay. So... Um, so how do we go in and force the trustee to give us, uh, you know, we represent a child, let's say the child's a beneficiary. How does the beneficiary get an accounting? The problem is, is that with revocable trust, the probate code specifically says that only the person who has the power to revoke has the power as a beneficiary. Everybody else, even though they're a beneficiary, they're not really a beneficiary. That's right. Until the, the, the other beneficiary is deceased. But let me throw in, let's say they are a vested beneficiary to the bypass trust portion of the assets. Is it wise to force the surviving spouse to give them an accounting of the bypass trust assets? It's a great idea as long as you don't mind being disinherited from everything else. <laughs> And that's what people need to understand is there's no, that's why I said it's always better after somebody's dead. I mean, both spouses are dead because they're, everything's set in concrete. Right. The rules of the trust are there. We can interpret them and we can enforce them as lawyers Directly. do. Yes. Yeah. But if there's a surviving spouse, especially in a blended family situation, and you are saying, gosh, they keep using all of the assets out of the bypass trust when they should be using the survivor's trust assets. Right. That may be true. But my advice to you is, can we wait until she's gone, especially if it's close? And you can never know when somebody's going to die, but if somebody's got all kinds of underlying health ailments and they're not going to be here longer than a year or two, it's almost always better to wait and then go for damages against their portion of the trust to get back to the bypass trust. Do you agree? I, yes. I mean, the ideal situation is you wait until after the parents are deceased because then they can't, if you challenge even the irrevocable portion, the bypass trust, they can't disinherit you from the survivor's trust because they're deceased. 
Now, it could be that you're already disinherited from the survivor's trust because your sibling or some bad actor came in and already figured that out. Right. But you don't want to prompt that if you can avoid it, and you don't want to give any excuses That's because that'll be used against you later. Right. If you file and you try to attack the bypass trust while mom's still alive, right. they're going to say, well, that's why she disinherited you because you were attacking her. That's right. But what if mom does not have capacity? What if she's in a coma, not conscious, no uh, chances of coming out of the coma. Does that change your mind? Well, sure. Then I'd be trying to get a, an accounting of all the assets. I want to see everything. And why does that change? Well, it changes for two reasons. Number one, uh, mom isn't likely to disinherit you if she's in a coma. Yeah, it makes from it a the, lot harder. From the survivor's trust. Yeah. And secondly, when she's incapacitated, there's some rights that you're going to have as a beneficiary in her survivors, in, in the survivor's trust, since it can never be changed. And so... I think the court there is probably going to allow an accounting. Yeah, and the probate code even says that the child's rights as a beneficiary don't actually come into play while the trust is is, uh, revocable. So as long as mom's alive and she can amend it and change it, provided that she has capacity. So if she's incapacitated, then that's an exception, and now the child can take action directly, as if mom were deceased. Right. Here's the problem. Every time people call in and they say, mom's incapacitated, can I get an accounting? What would your answer be? Well, mom's probably not truly incapacitated. <laughs> from a legal perspective. From a legal perspective, yeah. yes. Yeah. I mean, we have one case right now where there's a, a B trust and there was a, a demand for an accounting of the B trust. And sure enough, uh, the bad daughter in this case takes her mom, who has dementia, and they change the trust. Well, that still leaves us with the uphill battle of arguing that there was an exercise of undue influence or lack of capacity, and, and right. you and I both know capacity is a difficult argument to be able to prove at the time of trial. Right. So when somebody calls in and says, well, my mom doesn't have capacity and I want accounting, really with the start of the conversation is no, you're not entitled to an accounting. Right. But if you want to pursue this, first of all, whether or not your mom has capacity, the court ultimately has to make that decision. That's we, right. we won't know until a court says yes or no. And if the court says, no, mom has capacity, then you're you're in big trouble. The other option is you go in on a conservatorship and try to get mom conserved and put a conservatorship in place because then the conservator can ask for an accounting of the trustee, right? That's right. Good idea? Terrible idea. Why is that? Well, again, you want people dead when you're doing these things. I don't know if I made that clear or not. (laughs) Yeah, you did. (laughs) Uh, The problem is you're going to go for conservatorship of mom, and what if you lose? What if mom's not conserved? Mom's going to not be so happy that you wanted to have her incapacitated. So she's either going to disinherit you or the bad sibling, bad actor is going to disinherit, have mom disinherit you. And they're going to say, well, the reason is, is because you sued her and wanted her conserved. That's right. So you're, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. That's why it's just better to sit back, especially, you know, when we see cases where there's multiple millions at stake, we say, look, there's enough money in the survivor's trust, more than likely that... Uh, you can make up for the losses to the bypass trust. Uh, People say to us too, well, you know, what happens if they run off and burn the money in Vegas? I'm sure that case is out there, but I have never seen that case. And the reason I don't believe I've ever seen that case in all of my time of practicing, I haven't seen that because people that would proverbially go and burn the money in Vegas, they don't see the money as anybody else's. They see it as their money. Right. And the minute they see it as their money, they're not going to burn it. They're guarding it. They're guarding yeah. it. That's right. And so, you know, there's a in lot most of... most cases. In most cases. Unless you have an addict or something. If, you're, if you have a drug addict, that, uh, yeah, that can, 
yeah, that's a whole new set of issues that you have to deal with. But in most cases, people aren't going to run to Vegas and burn the money because they think, oh, the lawyers are going to get this, or maybe my other half-brother or sister are going to end up getting this. They always believe it's their money. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's it's a tough answer to have to say, yes, it's possible to get an accounting, but it's it, you shouldn't. That's right. You just shouldn't. It's tough. It's the worst consult that I ever do is when there's still a parent still living. And it's a hard consult because the, and the clients, this is their first conversation with having this subject matter discussed. We've seen it time and time again. And they keep trying to figure out a way, to, can't we do this? Can't we do that? Well, they want to help their parent. Yeah. Like who, would, who wouldn't? That's who right. wouldn't want to help their parent? That's of course right. you want to help your parent. That's right. But the problem is, is that there's not a lot of good ways to help a parent, especially when, and this is true even if you have good planning in place, because if you have a bad actor that comes in, they can wreak havoc with even a good plan. That's true. I mean, yes, you should have planning for sure. Yeah, I, my, my other rule, other than people should be dead before you litigate these matters, um, it's better to steal some, it's better to steal $5 million from somebody by way of an inheritance than to rob $20,000 from a bank. <laughs> if you go right. in and you rob a bank for $20,000 and get caught, how long are you going to go to jail for? A long time. A long know, time. At least years. At least 20 years minimum, yeah, right, right? Right. You steal $5 million from a decedent, how long are you going to go to jail for? Uh, I don't think you'll even be prosecuted. It's a civil matter. It's between family members. That's right. You know, we've heard it all. That's we've right. We've heard it all. So but... if you're a really fraudulent person, <laughs> no, don't give up. And you're thinking advice. about robbing a bank, don't. <laughs> yeah. Go find a nice old lady, a nice old man. Cozy up. Cozy up. Yeah. Yeah. We've heard that story Just so many kidding. times. Just kidding. Don't do yeah, that. That's right. wrong. <laughs> That's wrong. In every way. In every way. <laughs> okay. So. Do your fraud with old people, and <laughs> you want people dead. We've learned a lot today. Yes. So I feel, I feel good about yes. this one. Yes. This broadcast. Okay. Well, that's all that we have for today. I want to thank you for watching, and we will see you next time. And I want to thank Kayla for joining us on this one. That was yeah, fun. Say goodbye, we'll, Kayla. 